This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 29th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by a special guest, Dick Toffel. After training and practice as an attorney, Dick began a long history in journalism, first at the Wall Street Journal, then as the first employee, and ultimately, until his recent retirement, the president of ProPublica the nonprofit investigative journalism newsroom. Under his leadership, ProPublica was awarded six Pulitzer Prizes. During this academic year, he's a distinguished visiting fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, involved in an effort to look at the subject we want to discuss with him today, the press and communications during the time of COVID. But before we do that, let's talk about two articles that we published today. Both involve preventing illness, but in different ways. First, we've heard a good deal about the efficacy of the vaccines that have been used in the United States, but somewhat less about vaccines used elsewhere in the world. Today, though, we have an example of a vaccine that's used in many parts of the globe, but which hasn't been approved in the United States. So what is this vaccine and what do we know about it? Steve, this vaccine, which is called Chadox-1, was developed by Oxford and AstraZeneca. It's similar in some ways to the AD26 CoV2S vaccine, which is made by Johnson & Johnson. Both of them use the same antigen, the spike protein from the virus that almost all of the vaccines use. However, in each case, it's inserted into an inactivated viral vector. This vector infects cells leading to the expression of the gene. But since most of the adenoviral sequences are removed, it can't itself cause an infection. The J&J vaccine uses a human adenovirus, which is an uncommon type of adenovirus, while the AstraZeneca vaccine is built on a chimp backbone. The idea of using a chimp virus is that it would not ordinarily be encountered and that there wouldn't be pre-existing immunity to the virus. This was the first vaccine approved in the UK and remains one of the major vaccines in many parts of the world. The reason it's used is that there was an earlier randomized controlled trial that was performed that showed that the vaccine was safe and effective. That trial, which was done in international sites, did have one issue. Due to an error, participants received two different vaccine doses, which made the interpretation of the study a bit problematic. Clearly though, the vaccine does work. That's been shown in real world effectiveness studies. There have been some issues with it, the suggestion of some lesser activity against certain viral variants and a rare but serious side effect, which we've discussed before of a thrombotic thrombocytopenia that's led to serious illness and death. This is extremely rare, however, and the vaccine has been an extremely important tool. So Eric, I think that as you frame this, this vaccine is another important tool that we've been using for many months in trying to control SARS-CoV-2 and its spread. There are a couple of important principles that you've alluded to, but I want to highlight. First is that the viral vector delivery system, which the ADNO, AD26 and the CHIMP ADNO represent, present immunogens to the immune system differently than messenger RNA or protein or inactivated virus. And that's part of the strategy a year ago when many different groups moved forward to develop vaccines utilizing these different types of properties to see which would be most advantageous. What's embedded in this and that we've taken for granted over the last year is it's really hard to make new therapeutics. 
And when one manufactures a molecule for clinical use, there's a lot that goes into getting that right, release testing and dosimetry. So many things have gone extremely well, but we shouldn't underestimate the challenges that are required in this process. In addition, what insert is being used? And a slight technicality is the AstraZeneca vaccine used a slightly different insert than the messenger RNAs and the AD26 in terms of a wild type insert as opposed to a prefusion stabilized. But that is a technical issue. But these types of small differences may make a difference if we see a difference in activity. And that's something that we're continuing to study. And we look forward to more reports like the one we're publishing this week that help illuminate how well these different constructs work. So in fact, what we published today are the results of another large phase three trial of the AstraZeneca vaccine. What did we learn? This trial differs in a couple of ways. First, the study was performed in the US, Chile, and Peru, and was performed using a protocol that would permit possible approval by the US FDA. And second, the dosing problem from the first study was fixed. So all the participants received the same dose, administered twice with a four-week interval. The study was placebo-controlled using a two-to-one randomization. So the majority of participants actually received the active vaccine. Patients were encouraged to get tested when they developed symptoms and kept a diary of adverse events. The plan is to follow the patients for a total of 720 days. However, this interim analysis was triggered after 150 infections. As is usual for these studies, the primary endpoints were both efficacy and safety. The endpoint was reached in mid-March, which means that the study was performed before the Delta variant was widely circulating. There were more than 21,000 vaccine and 10,000 placebo recipients. A quarter of them were over age 65. They had the usual array of local and systemic reactions that occurred within a couple of days of vaccination and generally resolved over the next few days. There were no cases of that rare thrombotic thrombocytopenia and a similar low incidence of thrombosis in both of the vaccine and placebo recipient groups. By the time events were adjudicated, there were a total of 203 infections, 73 in the vaccine arm and 130 in the placebo arm. Given the difference in the size of the two groups, this resulted in a calculated efficacy of about 74%. And that finding held up pretty well in the various subgroups. There were only a limited number of severe cases, making it difficult to assess protection, although all those severe cases occurred in the placebo group. So once again, these are reassuring numbers, especially as this vaccine has already received broad use. How it will hold up now that Delta is the major circulating virus remains to be seen. So Eric, as you point out, it's incredibly encouraging to see another vaccine demonstrate efficacy. But as you alluded to, the real challenges in understanding how best to use this type of technology, whether a different dose or a different interval makes a difference, is not studied. However, as you noted in the earlier study, a different dose had been used and showed some beneficial results when a certain lower and higher dose were used together versus a higher dose and higher dose. I just raised that because the regimen studied needed to be done for expediency. However, normally in a scientific process, over many years, many iterations are done to optimize dose and interval. And in the setting of COVID vaccine development, 
the best scientific principles of how vaccines work were applied to be able to rapidly move these concepts forward of how to elicit potent immune responses. But I don't think we actually fully appreciate what dose combination or what interval combination brings out the strongest immune response. And we're seeing that play out today as we talk about third doses and other ways to enhance the immune response across vaccine constructs, let alone for the AstraZeneca construct. I agree. Saying that the best scientific principles were applied makes it sound good. Um, The truth is these are guesses. They're educated guesses, but they're guesses. We have no idea if we're using these vaccines in the best possible way. Certainly the numbers from efficacy studies have been excellent. So we're using them in a very productive way. But I'm not sure that we're ever going to learn a lot more about dosing and intervals and such because we're already well past that point. So we have what we have right now, and this is the way it's going to be. Agreed. I think that part of what the AstraZeneca and the J&J constructs bring us are scalability, which is another important element as we balance scientific perfection versus the ability to deliver a health benefit globally. And that's part of what has to be looked at carefully as we look at these different constructs and what benefit they show in what setting. And I think the AstraZeneca vaccine is complex to interpret given the road traveled with single doses, delayed second doses in some communities, the emergence of viral variants that may have increased or decreased susceptibility to the immunity elicited. But overall, these types of data reassure us that this technology offers a pretty good benefit at preventing illness. The second paper we published today looks at what to do for patients who are infected with COVID-19, but who aren't severely ill. What options have been available for those patients up to now? There really are a limited number of options for outpatients. Remdesivir does have some effect on illness, but it's administered intravenously. And so its use is pretty much limited to hospitalized patients. There have been several studies looking at antibody therapy, which is also administered intravenously. But since it's a single dose, you can give it as an outpatient therapy. These studies have used both convalescent plasma and single or mixtures of monoclonal antibodies. There have been a range of results, but to generalize, these therapies can decrease the incidence of symptomatic and severe disease if they're administered early. At later times after infection, when patients have already mounted their own immune response, these therapies appear to be less effective, if not completely ineffective. These investigators looked at a monoclonal antibody combination, casirivimab and imdevimab, in outpatients who were diagnosed with COVID-19 and who were at high risk of developing severe disease. What did the investigators find? These investigators randomly assigned participants who had a positive test for COVID-19 within three days and symptoms for no more than a week to be infused with either placebo or one of two doses of the antibody cocktail. The primary endpoint was hospitalization with some related secondary endpoints. The trial design was complicated and the two doses of antibody ended up with different control groups. So the final analysis population contained more than 4,000 randomized patients all of whom had at least one risk factor for developing severe COVID-19. 70% were SARS-CoV-2 antibody negative at baseline. 
Altogether, hospitalization or death occurred in between 1 and 1.3% of the antibody recipients and 3.2 to 4.6% of those receiving placebo. In addition, the symptoms resolved somewhat more rapidly in antibody recipients. Surprisingly, there was not a significant difference between those who were antibody positive prior to receiving the monoclonals and those who were not. So this is yet another example of antibodies providing some benefit. It still seems likely that most of the benefit will be for those who are early enough after infection to have not yet mounted their own immune response. So this treatment probably makes sense for those who are vaccinated but immune compromised, but it should certainly not be seen as a substitute for vaccination. Eric, I think you highlighted some of the key principles, which is timing is everything. And I think what the monoclonal experience has shown us in this report continues to show us is really understanding the biology and pathogenesis of SARS-CoV-2 and where does this type of therapy fit in. And as studied in this report, early in illness, to prevent disease progression. And I think that is something we take for granted now, but over the last year, took quite some time to figure out these principles and to understand when a treatment like a antibody directed against the virus can provide most benefit. And I think this report affirms that understanding and extends it in terms of where we can see the benefit. You point out where else there might be benefits, such as those who can't mount an immune response, and that makes a lot of sense, and we look forward to seeing data that can help establish that. But ultimately, getting vaccinated and having endogenous immunity is probably the best short- and long-term protective strategy. I'm going to double down on what you just said, Lindsay, because delivering antibody is A, expensive, B, not as good as vaccine, and C, logistically very difficult. There has been a move to try to increase the availability of this. And in some places, this is seen as a substitute for vaccination. It's simply not. It's really important that people still get vaccinated, even if we have this tool available for people who are at particularly high risk because they don't mount a good response or they just are high risk individuals because of their underlying illnesses. But what we will have to monitor, Eric, which I think we've discussed before, the virus is not passive. So monoclonal antibodies target a particular epitope. If you give two monoclonal antibodies, you're targeting two epitopes, and therefore there is less risk of viral escape or of not being active against the circulating virus. However, with time, SARS-CoV-2 is going to evolve, and as we've seen, it has evolved in ways that have escaped some of the earlier generation monoclonal antibodies. So this type of technology will have to stay current with the circulating strains to ensure proper activity. Dick, a question for you. The COVID-19 epidemic has clearly increased the demand for medical reporting. Traditionally, Major news outlets have had reporters who covered the healthcare beat and learned a good deal about how to find reliable information and how to translate that information for the general public. But with so much demand for COVID stories, how have newsrooms dealt with the need for coverage? First of all, thanks for having me, all of you. Um, you know, I think there's both good news and less good news here. I mean, the good news is there have been literate quite literate translators and reporters who have experience in this area or related areas like 
Helen Branswell at STAT and Ed Young at The Atlantic, Caroline Chen at ProPublica, and many others who really rose to the occasion. There have been lots of explainers. The public has learned a great deal. It may not be always apparent to specialists or even medical professionals, but I think the general public has learned an incredible amount about epidemiology in general and about this disease in particular, and that's quite striking and very helpful. But there are weaknesses as well and problems, Steve, that your question suggests. I think in particular, there has been some weakness among generalist reporters, and I would specifically, frankly, target political reporters and people who have looked at the disease and the pandemic through a political reporting lens, which I think is not helpful, very frankly, quite often in helping people understand what's going on. And beyond that, in terms of deficiencies in coverage, things that I've worried about are too little questioning, too little skepticism. Um, one example, for instance, that I think will loom very important as we write the history of all this, the lack of skepticism about the distinction that authorities made in the early phase of the epidemic between the risks of fomites and the risks of disease transmitted through the air, where on the one hand, as I think everyone now understands, based on essentially no science, there was the idea that, well, fomites are a real potential threat, so you need to take great care, and people end up wiping down their groceries, as it turns out, unnecessarily. Okay, but you can defend that and say, well, previous what were thought to be similar diseases had been transmitted that way, so it's not an unreasonable thing to advise people, given that we didn't know that there was great uncertainty. But on the other hand, there was a reluctance, and actually advice to the contrary, about wearing masks when we didn't yet know about how and to what extent the disease transmitted through the air. On the press side, the reason I raise all of this is more skepticism about the basis for this advice or lack of it would have, I think, revealed some of this early on in a way that would probably have been helpful and is the role of the press. Another example would be the rule about six feet of distance, which was pervasive in this country. And as you all know, is not the norm in many other countries, not the rule that was suggested in many other countries around the world. And again, a lack of skepticism, a lack of questioning about that. Last point about deficiencies, I think far too little tolerance in the press for uncertainty. In an evolving situation like this, there's always going to be an enormous amount of uncertainty. And the press simply needed to and still needs to get better in helping its readers, listeners, viewers understand that and tolerate and frankly, to some extent, embrace it. So there's an enormous variety of media outlets, and I understand that it's difficult to generalize about their messages, but what further examples have you seen of good reporting and perhaps less good reporting? So this is a very complex subject, the pandemic itself. And I think, therefore, that it lends itself better, for instance, to text and to radio and less well to video. Video tends to be reductionist. 
and this is a subject that doesn't do well with that. It is also, I think, as a consequence, again, of the complexity, we've done a much better job in conveying messages to sophisticated audiences and less well to the less well-educated. And I think this is a very, very significant part of the problem that you have seen with the vaccines and vaccine rollout and vaccine hesitancy. Dick, I wanna go to something that you mentioned earlier, but in the context of this question, which is the coverage of the epidemic by political reporters. To be fair, how much is being driven by the reporters themselves and how much by the politicians who it's their job to cover? Well, of course, it's both. And it's not just the reporters, it's their editors and producers. But I think one thing that journalists in general have needed to learn, and a lot of them have learned over the last six years in particular, is it is not, I think, the job of good journalists simply to repeat and just pass along what politicians say, even if those politicians are in or running for the highest offices. That does not help anybody, particularly if it's simply not true. So, Dick, along those lines, as you've suggested, politics and science don't mix well. When in science, we want to communicate facts for people to know so they can make informed choices. How do we separate what has become commingled in the public discourse, this politics and science? Because it seems detrimental to the scientific process and to the health of the public. Well, Lindsay, I think to be fair, scientists need to get a little bit more modest about what they really do know. Because you're right that sometimes it's facts, but particularly often early on in the development of something or as it changes, there's uncertainty and hypothesis. And I think of, yes, some of the problems here are with people repeating falsehoods. Some of the problems are actually begin with scientists or public officials who are sympathetic to science conveying as facts things that are not yet quite established as facts. I think, for instance, if you look at the CDC's evolving mask guidance over the last six months, if it had all been delivered with a great deal more modesty and tentativeness, it would ultimately have been much more effective. Dick, you're absolutely right. I think how we manage and communicate uncertainty is at the heart of this. And that's something we all need to think long and hard about how to do that better. If I could say one more thing, Lindsay, it would be this, that this is a complex subject. And when there are aspects of it that may appear to be even contradictory, they need to be presented as such. I think we do the public no favor in trying to reduce things to simplicity that are not simple in the worry that they simply won't understand the complexity. And I think there has been at numerous points an effort to reduce things in the fear that the audience won't comprehend them otherwise that then leads to a sense on the part of the public that things are going back and forth and the people may not know what they're talking about in the first place when actually they do. Dick, I think that that is incredibly challenging with COVID, given that 20 months ago it didn't exist. 
So everything we knew, we learned along the way, meaning at one point in time, we understood it a certain way. And over the next days, weeks, months, knowledge emerged that changed our understanding. And that becomes very challenging to communicate because it's an evolution of thinking that is being communicated and reported on in real time, which can appear contradictory, as you suggest. And how do we communicate that in its complexity, not alarmist, but not unnecessarily or inappropriately reassuring for what we know at the time? First of all, it is hard. But second, you know, if you're sitting in February or March of 2020, the answer is to be more candid based on expertise about this is something we knew nothing about 90 days ago. And it is a new disease. And with new diseases, we are going to learn as we go. And here are our conclusions today. But based on our experience, some of them are likely to be incorrect. And we will let you know when they change. Candor about complexity, context, not obscuring uncertainty where it exists. And then last, when new facts emerge about the disease changing or about the efficacy of responses of various kinds, acknowledging here's the new thing, here's why it's changed our view, here's our new view, as opposed to sort of sitting on Mount Olympus and declaring here's today's truth, and then a week later, we're back from Mount Olympus with a different truth, and we hope you won't even notice that it's different. I think it's an interesting contrast to the scientific and medical literature, where if you read carefully, there is as much room given to why you shouldn't believe the results as why you should. So there's a lot of skepticism, even within the initial reporting of a clinical trial, for example. However, there is a condensed version right at the top, the abstract, which kind of lays out with very little skepticism the overall findings of the study. It's really hard in a short piece to capture all of the uncertainty. And as you said, a lot of reporters are stuck with short pieces. You can't be writing a feature article in The New Yorker about everything. That's absolutely right, Eric. But I think particularly public health officials and public officials generally in translating an abstract, for instance, would often be better off if they started with phrases like our current best guess is. So what lessons do you think we've learned for the next pandemic that could help scholarly journals like the New England Journal of Medicine and the popular press communicate? You know, Steve, one of the things that I found most striking in thinking about this pandemic is the end of John Barry's great book about the 1918 flu. And he writes at the very end of the book, if there is a single dominant lesson from 1918, it's that governments need to tell the truth in a crisis. Risk communication implies managing the truth. You don't manage the truth, you tell the truth. I think we have at great cost been led to try to relearn that lesson in the last two years. The good news, looking to the future, as I tried to say earlier, is that I think the whole country, to greater and lesser extent, has taken a course in epidemiology, a course that's been very hard won. So I think there is some hope that the next time we can, to some extent, effectively start the course 
at the 200 level. But we do need to do so, I think, with more humility. And while we remain in this, again, with really redoubling both our respect for the people to whom we're trying to communicate and our own candor. Thanks very much for joining us today, Dick. And as usual, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.